0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Investing with IBD podcast sponsored by Scoofus. It's Justin Nielsen here, and it's Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. And joining me as always, I have Arusha Piras, Portfolio Manager over at O'Neill Global
1: Advisors. Welcome, Arusha. Hey, Justin, thanks for having me on again.
0: <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it's it's not like I'm having That'd you on. Nice. You force yeah. yourself on. It's, uh, you know, basically, a, I, no, tomato, no one to get rid of you.
1: Right?
0: <laughs> but we're also glad to welcome back onto the show. This is someone that Arusha, when he was a captain of this ship, uh, someone that he interviewed, uh, what was it, two years ago? It's Andrew Channon. He's the CEO of Procure AM. So, Andrew, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. Okay, so, uh, Andrew, let's go ahead and start out uh, Procure AM. That doesn't really tell me anything about what you do. What What is it that you do? Who are you? So, I started
2: off my career making markets in ETFs, and from there, actually developing ETFs and creating products that I thought that investors were looking to get exposure to. And over at Procure AM, we've uh, built a pretty diversified company where, um, right now, one of our big focuses is the space industry and knowing that this was an industry that a lot of people are interested in, but don't necessarily know how to how to pick these securities. We wanted to create uh, an easy, diversified way for people to get instant access to over 40 publicly traded companies from around the world specializing in various areas of the space economy.
0: Okay, and uh, why space? What was it, I, I mean, certainly there are, uh, I mean, were you a big Star Wars fan? What, what got you so interested in space or was it just recognizing uh, this kind of final frontier, if you will?
2: It's a, a mix of all these things. Um, you know, I, I've had a, a knack for bringing out products, uh, sponsoring, developing products uh, before many people are considering investing in them as, uh, as a theme. Um, I, I helped bring uh, investing into cybersecurity uh, to the US, video game technology, uh, numerous other areas before other uh, competing products were created around those areas. And space was one of those that a I was certainly interested in the industry, um, certainly you know television and you know the whimsical parts about uh, mm-hmm. space as well, you know looking way off into the future. But really, there are some incredible technological changes, um, the ways that policymakers even look at space today. There were just so many potential catalysts out there for the overall industry that we thought that now was was uh, the appropriate time. To create this product and, and give easy access to the space industry for for investors of all types.
1: Hey, Andrew! Yeah, great having you back on the show. Talk about the before we get too far into the the space part. Talk talk about just understanding the index and and why. You, know what are kind of the most important things to do when building the index to target what you're actually claiming that you're, you're going out? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, you know, uh, I,
2: to me, being first to market is important, but not at the expense of, of rushing out an index and really kind of thinking about what that index is, how it ticks. Because ultimately, when an investor is investing in a passive ETF, those ETFs try to replicate that underlying index. And so, you know, there's been numerous examples over time where there'll be some type of themed fund. And you look at the holdings, and all of a sudden you're saying, you know, this is just another technology fund. I already own so many of these companies in my portfolio. Am I really kind of just Texas hedging my portfolio by by adding this to the mix? And uh, you know, examples like uh, you know having a water fund and GE being the largest holding because it's the largest company in the basket, but it's really call it a less than one percent. Uh, you know revenue exposure mm-hmm. that that company actually has to water. So it's not really what's actually driving that company's performance. And you know, space was something that I think is you know, highly misunderstood or debated as far as what space is from individual to individual. Um, but we were actually really excited when when looking at this index that was available for licensing. It was co-developed by a former director of uh, the Space Foundation, uh, former director of research for the Space Foundation. Um, He actually helped, if you're familiar with the Space Report, which is probably the most viewed annual space analysis report that comes out every year out of the Space Foundation. um, This individual, Michael Walter Range, um, actually helped develop the model years ago for quantifying what is the space industry? What are the technologies? What are the companies? What are the revenues? How has that changed over time in measuring that? And So we have um, you know, some, some invaluable expertise that helped build this index from someone that studied uh, astrophysics and space policy while at school and truly understands the space industry and actually dove in to do the research to determine revenues derived from space. Mm-hmm. So that is you know, a driving factor. Um, at least 80% of the underlying index needs to have a majority of its revenues from space at times Mm -hmm. of rebalance, but it still leaves up to 20% for some of those more diversified players. So think your, your Airbus, your Raytheon, your Lockheeds that are major players in space, but it's not the majority of the revenue. So in order for them to qualify, they still have to have either over 500 million in annual revenues from space, or still be over 20% of their revenues, but less than 50%. But not wanting to overweight it with companies that are really moving for other reasons not associated with space. That was the reason for this 80-20 split.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, do you weight those that that 20%? Uh, do you weight those companies different if they don't have the majority of their revenues uh coming from space? Yeah, they, they have a capped weighting at rebalance
2: okay. time. So um, you know, certainly once the you know that rebalance Day occurs, then you know the stocks in the in the fund are are moving. However, they move throughout that next quarter, um, but you know at the next rebalance, those can be uh, reconsidered to put them back into place. Um, but it's not a firm rule that we have twenty percent these diversified names. It's just up to twenty percent can be in them.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, Russia, the whole uh, war in Ukraine uh, with Russia and Ukraine. Now that that's. Now, somehow, space has something to do with this war, too, or it's it's accelerating the business? Space will likely have something to do with every war going forward for humanity. Wow. Space
2: has become so interwoven into what we are as a society, but extremely importantly, from a military and tactical standpoint. So if you remember the from the early days leading up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we were actually being provided with satellite imagery of troop buildup and equipment buildup on the border of Ukraine. Many of those photos were courtesy of Maxar, uh, a major uh, manufacturer and operator of satellites and one of the top 10 holdings currently in UFO. So before the war even started, satellites were playing a major role in tracking this. And it's not just satellites pointed at the Ukrainian border, you know, there are satellites all around the world looking at all different types of things, not always for military purposes. But, you know, that was really space's foray or entrance into into this crisis. You know, as time has gone on, communications was kind of the next big Mm -hmm. area from space. So you had uh, via sat, a satellite company, whose some of their satellites became inoperable. And it hasn't been fully attributed to anyone, but some people suspect that it was from adversarial nations trying to wow. block off satellite communications during this time. Um, so it was also you know, brought to everyone's attention that President Zelensky was utilizing a sat phone, a satellite phone, as mm-hmm. a way to have secure encrypted communications without being interrupted. And so that is just you know one aspect of how space affects war, but that is, you know, that was you know, kind of the immediate
1: steps. Well, even right. uh, with uh, Starlink, right? With, yeah, Elon, that's what I was, he was thinking. Yeah, he, he, I mean, he, he that went all viral where he kept sending all the the dishes and stuff like that to to Ukraine so they could stay in touch. Yep, and, and that's you know providing a,
2: you know a valuable service to you know government officials, civilians. Um, so, you know, many people have said you know maybe this is just a you know a PR stunt for Starlink. But right. you know, certainly people were benefiting from having those communications, whereas otherwise they, they may have been completely isolated. But you know, when you look at the, the broader effects and looking at this um, crisis in particular, um, you have this isolation kind of movement. And Russia is saying, we don't want to cooperate with unfriendly or adversarial nations or companies that operate there. And space is something that had been you know, previously pretty collaborative. I mean, you look at the mm-hmm. the International Space oh. Station as one of the best examples of collaboration, regardless of what was going here down down here on Earth. Uh, there's collaboration there of, of numerous countries and astronauts from all over, and. One of the first things they said was talking about stepping out of the iss well that's going to be decommissioned probably by 2030 anyways and russia had already said that they were going to be withdrawing maybe around 2025. um this might speed it up but when you also look at what russia does they were a major launch provider for many for for even nasa for some time and they essentially held uh numerous one web satellites hostage uh, for a number of days uh, making demands for the company and the UK in order to to be able to use uh, the satellites. And it started making companies, countries, military say, you know what, I don't know if I can do work with Russia. And so uh, rocket engines from Russia are being cut off. So now you need to create your own rocket engines or parts and certainly for launch. And that's actually created some tremendous opportunities for non-Russian commercial space players. And so, European, North American and other countries or companies looking to do business are starting to say Russia's not even an option. who can we use? And you know fortunately UFO has you know, many companies that people comp- uh, governments are considering uh, contracting with going forward now that Russia is uh, a little
0: bit more of an unknown. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounds like, and maybe you could break this down a little bit for us, because you certainly started with the satellites. I mean, and that's that's kind of a clear-cut case. I mean, look, there are all these things in space uh, that that we know are are there. The satellites, you know, orbiting, um, and then there are, of course there's the launch part, which is mostly at this point kind of transportation either of those satellites to space or uh, back and forth to the ISS. Uh, what other elements of their is there for space revenue i guess
2: yeah so you know, the one that's gotten the most attention but it's, it's a much smaller part of the market than most people realize is space tourism um, mm-hmm. you know still in its infancy last year was really kind of the year of space tourism as far as familiarizing the public with what they're trying to do um you know its takeoff has been a little bit slow um from its uh you know pretty fast-paced 2021 um, that said, it's only predicted to be a $3 to $4 billion industry, according to many analysts, by the end of this decade. Um, that would be less than 1% of the overall current space economy today. So you know, that's a small part that tends to get you know, the lion's share of the coverage. But you know, there are a lot of things that satellites are helping do, providing real time data, which you know, we, we analyze for a multitude of purposes. You think of climate change and right. some people say you know, space, is, space is dirty. There's a lot of emissions with sending rockets. Well, a lot of these rockets happen to send satellites that help us understand weather, weather patterns, tracking wildfires or tornadoes, um, tracking emissions. Uh, so much of what satellites in space do actually help us understand climate change. So they provide a very vital role there. Um, If you look at analyst predictions for the space economy, Uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch had said that they believe that by 2045, this could be a $2.7 trillion industry. Morgan Stanley had said by 2040, they believe that this could be north of a trillion dollar industry. The one thing in common with many of these estimates is that broadband internet will be driving at least 50% Mm -hmm. of that growth. And satellites are basically um, providing this broadband internet and helping us connect to highly you know, dense populations as well as very remote populations spread out around the world where you know, it would have been really difficult to build out you know, kind of traditional connectivity. So space is really helping to connect the world, make it accessible for, for you know, many people, and we're able to utilize space in ways that we, we never were able to before. And it's, these technological changes are happening at a, at a breathtaking
0: speed as well. Wow. And uh, just to get back a little bit, uh, because, you know, you were bringing in the whole Ukraine situation and uh, talking a little bit about the the militarization. Um, Could you just kind of talk a little bit more about that relationship to some of these, I guess, military and defense? I mean, there's there's obviously when you're talking about the launch uh, capabilities and the satellite capabilities. Are there other aspects of that militarization that are coming into play with space? Yeah, and you can just look at it from the, the 2023 fiscal
2: year budget requests that uh, the Space Force is is requesting. Um, NASA is also expecting to get a, a record-setting budget for, for next year as well. Um, so the government has made a decision that space is for real and we need to spend in order to be competitive in this domain. And so what we saw from Russia late last year was they demonstrated their ability to use an ASAT, an anti-satellite, Uh, weapon to knock Mm -hmm. out a satellite. Not only is that scary because that means that they could probably take out other satellites if they choose, Mm -hmm. but the debris field that blowing up a satellite creates and how that affects and creates hazards to other uh, spacecrafts and space assets that you have in space. The International Space Station had to do emergency maneuvers in order to avoid that debris field. So you know, it, it's, it's, it's a major problem. If you know you have more debris that creates more potential collisions you have, you know, very small to very large pieces traveling at orbital speeds that makes contact with another spacecraft or satellite or anything that you have out there that could, you know, impair it or destroy it, which creates a bigger debris field. So mm-hmm. in order to keep low earth orbit safe, you have to detect these objects. You have to detect, um, uh, you know, potential missiles, laser technology is is being developed as well to potentially uh, combat projectiles. But then you, know, you have all these other areas of, you know, surveillance, um, you know, real-time tracking of what's the next big threat is hypersonics. So hypersonic mm-hmm. weaponry and technology is something that uh, we're very concerned over here, stateside, that both Russia and China have leapfrogged our capabilities. So, the, all...
1: Andrew, let, let me interrupt you there. So, describe hypersonic. What, what is a hypersonic weapon?
2: Yeah, it's it's a it's a weapon that travels extremely fast, so multiple times the the speed of sound. So, not only can these uh, you know objects travel. Far, but they could travel mm. far very quickly. So your ability to have some type of defensive mechanism to protect yourself from these, uh, you know, the faster something goes, the less time you have to react. Right. And it's it's believed that one of the best ways to detect these threats is from satellites and satellite mm-hmm. networks communicating with each other. And then to be able to potentially deflect or destroy these projectiles before they damage. Um, you know, your infrastructure or assets or whatever, you know, on on land, in the sea, um, or elsewhere. um, You know, time is a valuable resource and satellites operating with real-time analytics and AI um, could help track, not only detect them, but also track them as they travel. And hopefully we'll be able to build the systems that can combat them once they are detected.
0: Yeah. Well, so this kind of lays out the broad themes uh, that are going on in this field and uh, absolutely fascinating. So when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the specific companies that are involved with these. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Peter Scoofus, founder of Scoofus Capital, has successfully managed money using Bill O'Neill's strategy for the last 17 years. Peter's missed major market crashes, such as the financial crisis of 2008, and most recently, the coronavirus crash of 2020 one of his strengths is finding new leadership in new market uptrends. If you would like to talk to Peter and get his thoughts on the current market and what to do now, or get a complimentary review of your portfolio, feel free to contact him at skoufiscapital.com. That's S-K-O-U-F-I-S capital, C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. And fill out the contact form or by calling 866 562 2634 protect your capital and don't miss the next market uptrend and welcome back to the investing with ibd podcast sponsored by scufus it's justin nielsen here along with my partner in crime arusha paris from o'neill global advisors the one of the portfolio managers there and we're also welcoming back to the show andrew channon from procure am a uh, really fascinating discussion here on on space and so you've kind of covered a little bit of the uh, the broad themes here uh, and satellites seem like that was that was certainly a big one. Uh, so maybe you mentioned um, Maxar, maybe you could go a little bit more into this company. the ticker symbol is MAxr. Um, and what what it's getting the benefit of space from, how how it's really benefiting there. Yeah, So, you know, it's interestingly positioned as a
2: manufacturer, developer and operator of satellites, they kind of play several roles within the the satellite ecosystem. But what we've been seeing lately is that there has been this new land grab for low Earth orbit, realizing Mm -hmm. that although it seems like it's this massive amount of space, um, there really is only, you know, so there's so many satellites that you can send up before it becomes overcrowded. And we talked about how debris can become an issue um there's a race to produce satellites and get them up there now almost like being grandfathered in before a rule changes Mm -hmm. and we just saw last month the, the major announcement by amazon's kuiper project how they just locked up the biggest commercial launch deal of all time in order to do so they had to uh contract with three different launch providers because they want to send constellations of satellites in the thousands of satellites Right now, there's, you know, 3,500 plus uh, satellites operating in low Earth orbit. I mean, we're talking about adding possibly tens of thousands of satellites to low Earth orbit over just the next, you know, 10 plus years. So it's, um, so it's a wild,
1: wild West <laughs> <Especially> right <laughs> now. Cause uh, I mean, whoever just gets there, cause no one really is, there isn't a federation or some kind of alliance to. It, it's like just staking your claim. So, you know, yeah, if, exactly. if, if you're
0: there, you're there,
1: right. Yeah. You know, gonna, there,
2: There's treaties and, you know, the FAA looks at a lot of stuff here in the U S and, um, you know, communications related um, regulators look at different things as well. Um, but really, you know, the rules are what they are right now until they change. And it's going to be really difficult telling a company that sent up a thousand satellites, hey, you have to take them down. You know, mm-hmm. yes, satellites have a you know a certain lifespan, and then typically the goal is to safely deorbit them. Um, but you know, once once they're up there, these companies want to see them live out their full their full lifespan. And so being able to get things up there before your competitors do means that you're going to have to really develop these satellites and manufacture them quickly as well. So a company like Maxar has really uh, been around for a long time and has been, uh, you know, a leader in this area. So people looking to send satellites up and realizing that there's, you know, potentially a window that could be closing, um, you know, they're they're really interestingly positioned. We you know, we talked about uh adversaries being able to take out satellites Mm -hmm. uh satellites you know whether they blind them and you know make them temporarily um useless or if they actually blow them up and make them inoperable it's something where you know one of the best defenses is having uh you know diversification right so something that we talk about redundancies Mm -hmm. exactly so having probably more satellites than you need just in Mm -hmm. case something bad happens you know, it's going to make people want to have much more robust networks. So the idea of having more satellites than you need up there, um, you know, seems like it could be something that would benefit a, a manufacturer of satellites. Mm-hmm.
0: And out of curiosity, I, and I, I'm not sure if you know this, but what is, what is like the lifetime of a satellite generally? Uh, you know, some of them might only
2: be 10 years. It depends. Mm-hmm. Your technologies change it depends on what, uh, you know, what their orbit is. It depends on what they're actually doing out there um you know sometimes just the technology might become you know semi obsolete once it's out there um so it, it really depends on a satellite to satellite basis but you know ideally they they'd last over a decade
1: mm-hmm. what what about like the all the supply chain issues that that we've been seeing has that slowed down maxer from getting some of these satellites and uh, you know or any of these companies getting their satellites up uh, because there is a rush but if you can't get the semiconductors uh, to go into the satellites you still have to wait yeah you
2: know what we've noticed over time is you know deadlines are something that are very tough to to stick with with space mm-hmm. um you know not only do you potentially have supply chain issues especially if something's coming out of russia that you were relying on or out of ukraine who also does make some you know pretty important parts for space yep. um you know when you have those you know that's that that can be an issue some companies have you know had harder times dealing with it than others um, but you know, even launching things to space, you know, the weather could be bad one right. day, or it could be windy one day, and you have to delay the launch, and that next window might not be till you know weeks later. So mm-hmm. you know, it's something that's expected. You know, there you might have a deadline, but you know, if it's life or death, by reaching it to that deadline. You know, don't, don't don't hold your breath because you know thing, things take longer in many cases, and you know we've seen it in the space tourism you know business as well with deadlines being pushed out. So it's something that you know people should you know consider that there's certainly a risk of delays, whether it's from supply chains or even the weather itself um, or COVID. You know th- different things happen, and uh, you know it affects different companies uh, in a different way.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and since you mentioned uh, that, that I guess. Uh, restrictions sometimes that can happen with launches, uh, weather or uh, technology breakdowns or what have you. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit more about the companies that are involved on that launch side of things. So, you know, Maxar is there for the satellites and what you're actually sending up there. But what about that launch side? What companies would you say uh, kind of derive a lot of their revenue from that?
2: Yeah, so, you know, people are familiar with the names like SpaceX and Blue Origin because, hey, uh elon musk and jeff bezos right so they've got right. some pretty good pr teams and, right. and they're you know working to do a bunch on that front but as far as your know, names in ufo um starting from you know some big companies you actually have boeing and lockheed martin created a joint venture called the united launch alliance so that's been you know a pretty big launch company for years um you know when you're talking about uh you know something like military uh satellites or things like that you want to work with trusted partners uh, they already have a lot of relationships in place with you know some big industrial companies like a Lockheed and and a Boeing. It gives some comfort to um, to clients. Um, we also have uh, in Italy, who provides a lot of launches for uh, European governments or commercial entities. You have Avio, which is a company mm-hmm. that that works out of uh, out of Italy, providing launch services. Um, and then. We actually have uh, in the fund two recently de would um, launch companies in Rocket Lab and Spire, and they each have different approaches are trying to target different parts of the market. Um, but when you look at countries and companies no longer willing to rely on Russian launch services um, out of the Baikonur launch pad in Kazakhstan, it opens up this huge demand for non-Russian launch providers. And so there are only so many launch companies out there. They only have so many rockets. They only have the availability of sending so many rockets up o- under a certain amount of time. Um, uh, Astra, um, uh, one of those d launch companies has said that they could produce about one per month. So, you know, they'll have a, a bigger, more robust, you know, pipeline of potential uh, rockets that they could launch as time goes on, but they're not saying that you just say, okay, let's create another one and it's ready tomorrow. So to the extent that A, companies are trying to send a lot more satellites up, B, companies are having to rethink who they're going to, to use as a launch provider, and, and they're now ruling out certain launch providers because of where they're located, mm-hmm. um, and C, that, you know, the need to have these robust you know solutions as backups and fail safes, uh, you know, satellites with new technologies as well, to to detect and track different things and you know for earth observation and climate change and whatnot there's a lot of demand out there and only so many companies that can provide it so these companies are really interestingly positioned uh, for various types of clients to be able to fulfill that that demand and supply that that
1: capacity for them so And and i'm i'm also assuming that there's only so many locations that these companies can be based, right? Cause like in the U S it's like Florida or Cape Canaveral. Right? <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming that, I mean, that, that's probably one of the key things for these companies too. No, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the ability
2: to get access to, to various launch pads, get government clearances to operate, um, and to do space from these locations. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's not every place is a desirable location for it. I mean, you do have launches from Alaska, um, but you know it's certain places certain times a year watching for weather and other types of mm-hmm. conditions um, not every place is suitable and you know getting getting the ability to have access to those sites is something that these companies will be competing uh, in the future over
0: as well and there's also i mean as as we saw with Spacex there's kind of almost that need to prove yourself first uh, right where uh, they had to kind of go through some certain steps okay before you're going to be used and approved uh, you have to you have to kind of yeah, you know, show show us your stuff, right? To a certain degree,
2: yeah, it helps. And you know, having existing you know contracts and ones that you were successful with—not just getting the contracts, but being able to deliver on them—definitely you know, goes a long way. And mm-hmm. you know, there has been you know a lot of volatility in, across many different sectors and industries recently. Um, you know, the government and the military wants to know that you have staying power. It's not just mm-hmm. important you know where you're located or or who owns your company but you know, that you're going to be around to be able to deliver on that project. Not just that you can actually accomplish it, but that you know, you're financially sound enough. So you know, that's something that could position some of the the better financially managed companies uh, to potentially secure some of those contracts in the future as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And to that end, like Lockheed Martin and Boeing that you mentioned and their, their kind of partnership there, um, you know, certainly well-established names. Uh, where do they fall in that eighty twenty that you talked about at the beginning of the show? Where uh, the the majority of their revenue uh, are they in that twenty percent where it's considered like you're you're not getting most of your revenue from space? But you're still getting a, you know a significant revenue
2: from space. So you know we're talking okay. over you know five hundred million dollars and you know in revenues annually or over twenty percent of their revenues depending on the company. So mm-hmm. um, you know to call them a pure play space company um, right. you know w- wouldn't be accurate. But, you know, they are major, major drivers of the space economy. So it seems as if, you know, it makes sense that they have some representation, but, you know, being completely overweight in something that, you know, is far from a pure play would maybe deviate from that theme a bit.
1: Mm-hmm. And this might be a basic question, but why are we now seeing so much attention in space? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think the media does get excited about it. And it's something that's, you know, I think ex- people get excited hearing about I feel like it's been 40 years. Because, yeah. like, when, I, when, you know, when, when, when in the 80s, you know, I was really excited about it. I'm sure Justin, too, when the space shuttle's there, right? And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and they're were, they were broadcasting that, I think, probably on, on just national television, uh, those early launches and stuff like that. But then it just kind of died out. Why now?
2: So you may may be, you know, we're hearing it a little over two years ago or so when NASA came out saying space is open for business. Mm -hmm. But why is space open for business? It's because NASA and other agencies are now saying, you know what, we don't need to build everything from scratch. You know what, we have our missions and our goals. If you can help us accomplish that, we're happy to contract that out. We don't need to Mm -hmm. own and operate and build everything. We're willing to work with companies that can help us achieve those goals. And in many cases, it ends up being cheaper for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, NASA, oddly enough, is actually one of like the, the positive ROI investments for, for a government or a government agency. I've seen stats that for every dollar spent by NASA, there's actually been an eight dollar return in one oh, way wow. or another, uh, which is almost unheard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, when <laughs> Especially for a government agency. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But another thing that's helping us achieve these goals is techno- technological changes like reusable rockets why is that Mm -hmm. important previously it would be like the equivalent of flying in a in a plane from jfk to heathrow and then blowing the plane up when you're done you know if you can reuse that plane you save a lot of time you save a lot of money there's a lot of efficiencies that's what reusable rockets are essentially helping us do and that's helping to significantly decrease launch costs so if it costs you a fraction of the price for each kilogram that you want to send into space that lowers the barrier to entry it allows more companies to explore what they can do with space and that is a, is a huge huge win for the clients looking to to operate in space and this is something that you know analysts are, are saying you know years into the future they think that this price could keep on coming down as technological advancements increase and so you know if it ends up costing a dollar per kilogram to send something to space you know, imagine how many people you know, that can make sense for to To get involved in space, so that was you know, a major hindrance, and now it's becoming a, a huge opportunity, and that that's the real reason space is open for
0: business. Mm-hmm. And can you uh, put a number kind of on that fraction? I know I, I heard at one point, like with the Falcon Nine of SpaceX, it was you know reducing it by like a, a, a tenth of of the cost. Uh, do you, Do you have any numbers in regards to how much that's changed the environment? I I I, I don't want to try to give exact numbers, but mm-hmm.
2: But but that around a tenth of you know previous costs, um, you know absolutely sounds right. And they're talking about that coming down, um, possibly to you know hundred dollars a kilogram or so in the future if you know if everything goes right. And that's I mean that that's a complete game changer. I mean we're talking about completely different economics going forward. But stuff like that happens when you have reusable rockets, when you have you know more companies competing in this area, um, as fuel um, efficiencies change and uh, mm-hmm. you know become more improved. So there's, you know, a lot of things that can happen to help us drive, drive those costs down. And we're seeing it in real time and, you know, you know, say, say what you will about, you know, Elon Musk having a, uh, you know, a space company, he's been one of the biggest drivers in getting that cost down and right. the U S the military, the government are direct beneficiaries of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think we owe SpaceX a, a lot of you know, positive credit for what they're doing to help open up the space economy for, for America and, and beyond.
0: Well, and to that end, you were telling us, um, you know, before, before the show uh, about how seriously governments were, were taking a lot of this space thing. And so can you tell us a little bit about some of the, the recent development, what recently happened with Congress and, and space?
2: Sure. So uh, just yesterday, there was the first congressional hearing on UAPs, um, which is the, the modern day term for UFOs that your audience might be familiar with. Um, in over 50 years
0: and what does and, UAP
2: stand for? Uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon.
0: Sounds, sounds much fancier than unidentified
2: flying object, right? A little, a little more buttoned up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but really, you know, this came out of a report that came out, uh, about a year ago as well, um, from, you know, various intelligence groups within the U S and basically there was a lot that was redacted but the one thing that was glaring was that there are numerous incidences that we cannot understand. We can't quantify it. We saw, you know, we observed things like crafts moving faster and quicker making turns quicker than anything that we can, um, you know, relate it to that we've created as technology as humans, um, as well as uh, the lack of propulsion systems. And so, these appear to be technologies that we're unfamiliar with that all we can do is document them, but we can't really understand where they are, how they're doing, what they're doing, where they came from. And to to admit that, I think is important, um, you know for numerous reasons, but certainly this is being viewed primarily as a potential uh, risk to national security. And I, I, it absolutely should be if there are you know aircrafts operating, Above your airspace, that you don't know how they got there, what they're doing, why they're there, you know, that that's a that's a major security risk. Well, I mean, especially if they're very
1: technology. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a security risk, but you can't really do anything about it. <laughs> I mean, no, it's, it's only so much.
2: But but you know, let's look at it. You know, potentially right. from two perspectives. Say say this is you know adversarial, but not you know not from Earth. Uh, you know, otherworldly technology. Well, that is something that could you know, have the potential to bring bring the, the people of planet Earth together against a common a common enemy and do whatever we can to build out our, our capabilities to defend ourselves. Right. Now, I don't want to believe that that's the case. What about if it's if it's friendly? Well, imagine the type of collaboration or understanding of technologies that, you know, that could provide to our own industries and to our own society if if we had the ability to have uh, technology that could help us travel through space faster, or maybe it's things like just supporting life better in inhospitable conditions, like you know, growing food, uh, creating drinkable water, clean air, things like that that are basic needs on Earth. You know, who knows what the potential is for you know having communications with uh, species that are more intelligent than us. But you know, certainly, I would I would welcome that opportunity,
1: and uh, you know, hopefully that's that's all it is. Well, uh-huh. hopefully they're listening to the podcast, so uh, <laughs> right. you know, they'll they'll hear this. But how, it, how far do we send this out? <laughs> uh. <laughs> the, well, the flight's it, probably pretty long, so you need some true. content, right? <laughs> right. Well, well, apparently it's not just space though. So, some of these vehicles have gone underwater and things like that, right? They showed footage like that.
2: Yeah, it's it's beyond just aerial. Some of these are submersible as well, so they'll be traveling, you know, through the air and then all of a sudden just drop into the water and you know just disappear out of sight and. I mean, it's, it's not just the speed, but the, the rate at which they can change direction yeah. is something mm-hmm. that's also just mind boggling.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: I mean, these are coming from very credible sources. I mean, the highest, uh, you know, respected military agencies that we have here in the United States and even outside the United States. But these are kind of more so the, the ones that are being reported here within the U.S. that uh, we were hearing about, at least yesterday with the congressional hearing
1: yeah i remember seeing the i mean it was like some fighter jets that were trying to follow a ufo and it was just rapidly changing directions so fast that they were like almost cracking up yeah that how could it it's like impossible how can this thing do like this
2: uh, exactly and and you know, we're not even scratching the surface in right. our understanding of what what these are but certainly you know we, we we hope that our you know intelligence groups are taking this as seriously as as you can and you are know, trying to collaborate with other branches of the military and science and space to to figure out what this could be. And um, you know, ho- again, hopefully it's all amicable stuff and, you know, we'll be able to figure out what it is. But, you know, I think it's always best to you know prepare for the worst, you know, hope for the best, prepare for the worst.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, Andrew, this is a lot of stuff to think about. Uh, and again, I think in a lot of ways where people may not have realized exactly how much of this is is happening right now as as you've suggested uh not something that's necessarily future so uh again uh really want to thank you for coming on uh andrew andrew channon ceo of procure am the ticker symbol for the ufo ufo is the the one that's space etf uh that is under under his uh company so again thanks for coming on andrew thanks for having me it's a pleasure as always Okay. Um, and when we come back on the next segment, we are going to dive a little bit into the market. It's just going to be a and I for that segment because it was quite a day today. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Peter Scoofus, founder of Skoufis Capital, has successfully managed money using Bill O'Neill's strategy for the last 17 years. Peter's missed major market crashes, such as the financial crisis of 2008 and most recently the coronavirus crash of 2020. One of his strengths is finding new leadership in new market uptrends. If you would like to talk to Peter and get his thoughts on the current market and what to do now, or get a complimentary review of your portfolio, feel free to contact him at skoufiscapital.com, that's S-K-O-U-F-I-S, capital, C-A-P-I-T-A-L, dot com, and fill out the contact form or by calling 866 562 2634 protect your capital and don't miss the next market uptrend okay welcome back to the investing with ibd podcast sponsored by Scoofus. It's Justin Nielsen here, and I have Arusha Pires from O'Neill Global Advisors joining me. Uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about the market. We just had a great couple segments with Andrew Channon uh, from Procure AM talking about space, but uh, it's time to get back down to Earth, just like the markets <laughs> did today. So let's take a look at the NASDAQ and start there. So yesterday we, you know, we were talking about Thursday and Friday of last week. Uh, We had a nice reversal on Thursday of last week. Then we had a nice move up, very strong move up, uh, followed by a little, you know, a little move down, but it was inside the previous day. And then fourth day, we got our follow-through day um, up significantly, up over two and three-quarter percent on the NASDAQ composite. Volume was heavier than the day before. It wasn't above average, uh, but Bill, you know, when when he was – when he was talking with the markets team, um, he always stressed heavier than the day before. Above average uh, was desirable, but not always happening. There were a few cases where it didn't happen and he made it very clear that he didn't wanna miss any of these. So we always uh, try and make sure we're not missing anything and we kind of go with that confirmed uptrend, but it looks like that's gonna be under pressure now because we undercut the low of the follow through day And as we learned from Eric Kroll's presentation uh, on this podcast just a few weeks ago, once you undercut that follow through day low, you really have a lot of uh, increased risk of a failure. You know, once you uh, undercut that low, you're more likely to either undercut the rally day low or just not go anywhere for a while. So uh, Arusha, let me get your take on this. Um, what, What was your feeling about today's action?
1: Uh, not not a very good way to, way to start <laughs> that rally, Justin. It's mm-hmm. probably the worst uh, start that you could have. Uh, th- this was a brutal day; just kept getting worse. But honestly, it's not a, that much of a surprise. Uh, I think this is just well within character mm-hmm. of how these markets have been, especially the last couple of months. Uh, I'm on on this Nasdaq. I have the the 10 day moving average right here. It can barely get above the 10-day moving average. Yesterday, it got slightly above it, still well below the 21-day. And then today, right back well below the 10-day moving average, undercutting the follow-through day low. And on the S&P 500, uh, we had a follow-through day. uh, We had a distribution day on the Mm -hmm. S&P 500. So that automatically reduces the chances of a rally to, you know, Chris Gessel, uh, yeah, did that study and highlighted that a uh, long time ago and so we keep mm-hmm. an eye out for that with that three-day window if you get that distribution day and you know, kind of like the markets this the, the last couple of months it didn't even try <laughs> it just this today it was just like immediately gapped down and just kept selling 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 uh and so i i think it's in within character but i also think the bigger thing and and one there isn't kind of just a black or white type of all everything all signal here. You know, the fall day is just really telling you that the markets might have a chance to rally here. What mm-hmm. I found a better indicator is: are there stocks setting up, yeah. right? Because in the end, that's what's, that's what's the most important thing: are there stocks setting up bases, breaking out of bases, and actually giving you an opportunity. To start buying some stocks. And in this case, there weren't a lot of stocks. The big picture highlighted that, Uh, you know, if you're looking at enough stocks, you could see that it was very hard to find stuff. Uh, Now, there were a number of stocks within the energy sector, but if you're looking Mm -hmm. outside of the energy sector, there's probably very few. Well, I was going to say that one of the other areas that seemed like it was holding up
0: very well, again, if you just looked at some of the screens, like the relative strength blue dot, um, one of the areas that was very strong was, you know, food, you know, food kept on coming up in terms of the ranks. And, and you had like Tyson, um, Tyson foods, TSN, um, you know, that, that was, you know, looking like a pattern forming and, uh, you had SJM, you know, Smuckers, um, you know, so a, a lot of these what are typically considered food and very defensive uh, areas, because the idea is, well, we still got to eat, right? Well, these just got clobbered today. And it felt like what we saw at the end of April, where you had these areas that were doing well, you know, the steel stocks, the energy stocks, and, you know, right around April 22nd, it just felt like the rug got kind of pulled out from underneath a lot of those. And steel stocks haven't come back. They've They've been in a Big downtrend since then. Um, but now here we have these strong relative strength lines popping up in these very defensive areas. Um, and man, they got clobbered today. Usually, this is what's considered safe. They don't move that much. But, you know, you go down the list Hershey's, HSY, I mean, that got massacred today. Um, it was just, it was brutal out there uh, for these stocks. Uh, so, I mean, th- does that tell you anything about, you know, Safety.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that tells me how bad this market is, mm-hmm. right? Because there, are, there's not a lot of places to hide. There, there, the, the reits blew up a couple yeah. of weeks yeah. ago, and it and, and it seems like uh, we're almost in a classic bear market, right? Mm-hmm. Where and not just a classic bear market, like a classic like severe bear market, I guess mm-hmm. you could say, right? Where the market's almost taking its time rotating to different sectors and taking those se- sectors that were hoped to be safety out and then going to the next one. So apparently now it's it's come to the, the food area mm-hmm. and taken uh, these stocks out. I mean, I didn't see like some of these stocks until now. And it, it's uh, no mercy here. I mean, when Smuckers and Hershey's sell off like that, uh, that's, uh, it, it's a, you're, you're in a situation uh, in this market where, you just hope to have stocks if you can, if you have to stay in the market, right? If if you're an individual investor like most of us are, you can uh, stay outside of the market yeah. and be in cash. But if you have to manage a book where you have to be invested, and and so some of the books internally that we do, we are uh, trying out with uh, where we have to stay invested. It's mm-hmm. brutal. Like yeah. y- you, you're just hoping at this point to be in stocks that are just going down a little less than the market. (laughs) And it is it is just, you know, if you're an individual investor and and you can go to cash, you know, be very happy at that because that's the place to be. That's what I'm doing in my own individual accounts. And every day, Justin, I'll tell you this, you know, every day uh, I during this bear market, I thank Bill for uh-huh. sharing the system <laughs> right. sharing stop losses cutting uh-huh. your losses and charts because you know if you're reading these charts we we saw the danger we didn't know how bad it was going to get but we yeah. saw how dangerous this market was getting back at the end of last year like, right? something's off it's pushing us out of all these technology stocks then it's pushing us out of all these other stocks and wow, there's still a lot of stocks breaking down. Maybe we shouldn't have a lot of exposure in this market. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And and again, those those signs were pretty clear if you were looking at charts. Um, but I have to agree with you. I'm, I'm in the same boat. A lot of times on IBD Live, we've been talking about, well, if you have to buy something, you know, here's, here's some things to, that we're looking at. And again, most of those were the stronger relative strength lines. But we always wanted to make sure that we made the point that, for a lot of us we don't have to buy something we can just sit in cash and that's um that's the safest thing and i should also mention when there is a follow through day it's it's very important to remember this and you know if if anyone out there went a little bit too heavy this last time one of the important lessons that i learned in 2000 and 2003 and those those years of a bear market was i kept on going in too heavy I kept on going into, I mean, like I was on margin within days because I just wanted to make money again. Like I did in the late nineties, you know, that, that was all I knew was that you could just make money hand over fist. And I wanted to get back to that so desperately that I was going in heavy each and every follow through day until I figured out, oh, that's not what bill does. You know, he goes in and he says, Hey, let me let the market prove itself to me. Buy my stuff working. It's very simple. If your stuff doesn't
1: work, don't
0: put more money in. And start taking money out, right? And start uh, taking money out, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, you know, just get stopped out, listen to the market. You get stopped little... out, right. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's um, just that simple.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, the one thing I always say, and the one thing I always tell myself is, especially when you're in a correction or in a bear market and you get a fall up today, you know, let the market slowly pull you in, just like yeah. you were saying, right? And you don't have to do it all in one day. A lot of times, even in 2020, when we had that filter day in April 6th, I didn't really believe it, but I bought Ah, something on Mm -hmm. that day. Um, And maybe after two or three weeks, I was like maybe 50, 60 percent in. And then by a month, now I'm like 100 percent in. It took that Mm -hmm. long, you know. Mm -hmm. To to really let the market for me at least slowly pull me in because I was still a little nervous and it didn't seem right. But then the market just, you know, kept pulling me in and, and wasn't pushing me out from the stocks I was currently owning. And so there is that kind of process uh, Scott O'Neill always described it, that there are there are plenty of markets where it takes time that first month it takes time. So yeah. imagine like a 747 taking off. Where, you know, initially that 747, it's like, is it going to ever get off the ground? It's just like kind of just hovering there and it takes a while for it to slowly get off the ground. Then finally it gets uh, gets off the ground and starts, you know, inclining. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, you know, maybe we could just look at an example of this, Um, you know. In in 2003, we ha- we had this great rally, right? Finally, the bear market was over. So maybe if you just go um, a, a few months after the the March 2003 follow through day, uh, just to kind of show you an example. Now, this is one that worked. Okay, this is one that worked. But you see, you had that follow through day on March 17th, and. Then you had a couple of weeks of sideways action. It was like it, right. it didn't go straight up. You had kind of that that sideways action for a little bit, and and that's fairly typical. So again, to the point, you you kind of have a chance sometimes. It's not about being first. It's not about being early. It's about hey, you 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 throw a probe out there, and if if it doesn't work, then you, you just you know put your toe back in, you know, and 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 say this is too cold. I'm not getting in. Um, you know it, it, it's that simple and i think we got a very clear signal today hey if you dipped your toe in the water uh there, there's piranhas in that water it's, it's maybe time to get 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 that toe out before you lose a limb
1: yeah it, it's it's about making money it's not about being first like you said it's not about being right it's just about making money and and slowly put your money hard-earned money back to work as the mar as you prove to yourself that you're making money in the market now with this 2003 i clearly remember this one because it's my the first like kind of like real bull market that i saw after studying uh the system i i just clearly remember it, amazon was breaking out very powerfully on uh-huh. this time right so on uh, this 2003 is a great market to study because uh, you had this powerful follow through and but you had merchandise to buy yeah so Amazon right on that day was, bre- I think that was March 17th right there. It was like, it was breaking out of this consolidation mm-hmm. there. Uh, you, you had a, a newer, younger company, Netflix, emerging mm-hmm. out of this kind of cup pattern. We Yahoo, can't put up now. Yahoo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yahoo was kind of emerging out of an ascending base on mm-hmm. that day. Uh, NetEase was a new young Chinese gaming company. Uh, that, let's see. Let's see how that one looks. You know, coming out you know, out, out of this double bottom. So mm-hmm. you saw all of these. So that was a few weeks later. But you saw all of these companies starting to emerge. So if you see every few days another great stock, a growth right. stock, right? Especially a growth stock breaking out, that should be the signal. Now, if you want to play in the energy stocks, and those are doing well, and those essentially are in their own. Bear market, I mean bull market here. Uh, then, then stick to it. That's totally fine. That's like kind of the one sector that's working. Uh, but really, the real new bull markets for the the indexes—they're uh, they're broad based and a lot of times they're led by growth stocks and technology-related mm-hmm. stocks. And, you
0: know, you get a whole different picture when you've got growth stocks that are the ones with the high relative strength lines as opposed to your food stocks. It's yes. just a very, very different market when that, or, or your, your, your utility stocks or your REITs and, and so on, your your high dividend payers. Uh, it, it's, that that's, that's the kind of market that we look for. And just to kind of remind people that, again, if the market is gonna turn and if it's gonna get stronger, you're gonna see more and more signals. Um, you know, the way that we do things in market school is, uh, you know, the follow through day is one signal. You know and you start doing a little bit but you then want to see can you get above the 21 day line can you get above the 50 day line can you be trending above those lines can you uh, get subsequent follow through days another thing that we talked about with eric Kroll. so that's something that we have in market school you know those those follow-through days that happen after the initial follow-through day that kind of tell you yes this is something that has power and can keep going and all along that way you'll have breakouts happening uh, you know, almost on a regular basis to the point where you start saying, oh, man, look at this stock that I missed. Look at this stock that I missed. And that's how you know you're in a better market.
1: Yeah, so I, I just pulled up in Marketsmith and I looked at the near pivot list. There are only eight stocks right now that are part of the Girl 250 that are forming bases. Mm-hmm. And so that in itself is going to tell you how many stocks are ready to yeah. go and, and how what the probabilities of a rally working are just by looking underneath the surface. Now, when you look at a lot of these stocks, these more growth related stocks, the reality is, is they still haven't started to really try to build the bottom. <laughs> They're building the left hand sides of yes. something right now, right? So, yeah. when, when you see that, a lot of times it's like, oh, eh, maybe we have like at least two months or so, two to three months for these stocks to start going sideways and actually build some potential, maybe ugly kind of bases. Yeah. I mean, this 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 could be the bottom. Sure. You know, we haven't undercut the rally
0: day low yet, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to go up right away. We could get a lot of sideways action um, or like we saw in 2003. Uh, that was a three waves down a very classic three waves down before. market actually turned so we might be looking at another leg down
1: so stay tuned uh we will one last thing Justin. oh yeah one -hmm. one last thing justin um because i think you 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 reminded me there keep an open mind right it looks it looks awful right now (laughs) you know everyone i talked to including myself we're all very negative Mm -hmm. on the market but you always have to kind of keep that open mind you you did have a follow-through day we are under pressure but you just keep that open mind because these markets will always turn around when things look the worst Absolutely. Good
0: advice. And again, maybe even take another look at Jim Ropel's podcast from last week because uh, as negative as he could be on the market at any given point, he's always optimistic about the future. So uh, that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, you're going to get more Arusha and Justin time. It's going to just be us. Uh, We're going to chat a little bit more about the markets and we'll come up with some learning lessons and hope you join us for that. Thanks for joining us this time. We'll see you next time. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.